Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome, my friends, to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-398. I just rolled off a red eye in from California, so I might be a little, uh, might have my sexy voice on here. Um, hard to get motivated when your brain's so muddy. So I was on uh, Facebook Messenger earlier this week and realized that for some reason there looked like there were a whole bunch of unread messages in, uh, messages in there. And some of these were several years old, and I'm not sure if this was an artifact of some server upgrade or from when they pulled Messenger out into a separate app. But just to let you know, if you sent me a Facebook message and I and you didn't hear back, you know I apologize. Usually I respond to everything. I like interacting. I hope I didn't cause anyone to have a have a problem or give up on something because they didn't hear from me. So today we talk with Katrin, Kat, whose story I found in that Boston Marathon training group. Some interesting stories in there. Uh, they just actually, Vince Varillo, the guy who runs that group, it's like 4,000 people in there. Uh, he just collected a whole bunch of people's race reports from the 2018 Boston Marathon when the weather was so icky, and including mine. And he published a book called Boston Buddies. So if you want to pick that up on Kindle, there's some, some interesting stuff in there. Give you some good, good inspiration. So I wanted to talk to Kat because she was able to accomplish something I have never been able to. She was able to race herself right into the hospital for three days. And you'll hear all about that. And I don't know about you, but I don't tend to do that. I tend to give up way before I collapse on the course. But don't worry. It all is a happy ending. In section one, I'm going to talk a little bit about mastery, explore the concept of mastery. And in section two, I'm going to talk about happiness and purpose. Just, you know, just writing a little bit, trying to sort some things out philosophically. And I've been working on myself over the last couple of weeks as well, not just physically, but overall. And I'm working with Rachel a little bit on my nutrition I'm doing some other personal improvement stuff, and I've got my morning routine going again as much as I can. So I go through cycles, and I was ready for a, a reboot. 
And one of the things that popped up is that I think I have another book in my mind that's begging to get out. So how blessed am I that these things just stand up and shout every now and then? So I've just started, but the topic is going to be something around sales in startups. or And it's going to be for the entrepreneur who has a startup company. You know, entrepreneur has started a company with a great idea and great promise, but has to learn how to sell that idea and that promise. And for me personally, this I'm in my third trip through the startup cycle, and I think I could help a lot of people, not just the tactical how-to stuff, but the emotional wrapper that comes with navigating that choppy sea of a startup. And much like I combine the tactical practice of speed work with the ability to mentally survive the dark place of an intense training campaign and Marathon BQ, similar thing. I'm going to do that. So I'm still in formulation mode, but if you have any good ideas or want to talk to me or introduce me to someone who is a publisher or want to ride along as an editor or a muse, you can let me know. As you listen through today, think about how you can focus on mastery and not just competence or getting by. I think a lot of us, we've been doing this for a long time and you get to sort of a plateau and you start to mail it in. And if you think about it as a process of mastery, sometimes you're able to fall back in love with what you're doing. So listen to how Kat was able to navigate that extreme learning experience she had in her two marathons. And think about what you love doing and what your purpose is and why you're here. And I'm glad you're here. Brilliant. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Okay, mastery. Mastery is a process, not a destination. I was speaking to a friend of mine from my running group about heart rate training. And she voiced the common complaint that she couldn't run at a low heart rate. It was too slow, and she'd have to walk. It was uncomfortable. She didn't get it. She tried, and it didn't seem to work. And I told her that I had experienced the same thing when I learned how to heart rate train. I would consistently be slowing down and shortening my stride to get that heart rate down. And the answer, as it is in many cases, is not some trick or technique or magic bullet. The answer is practice. Practice, but a specific form of practice. It is a practice that forces you to learn a new thing, a focused practice. And the challenge is not so much that you can't learn this new thing. The challenge is that you need to be a learner. You need to put aside the fact that you already know how to do something, in this case, how to run, and are quite competent at it. And you need to move out of a place where you're comfortable and pull on that mantle of the student. So in this example, what we are really saying when we push back about having to run this uncomfortably slow pace is that we don't like it because it's new and it's different. We have mastered this other thing to some extent and now need to drop back into being a student to master this other thing so we continue to master the art, the running itself. And this is not an article about heart rate training, but I'll finish that thought, not to leave you hanging here. I'll finish the thought 
those first couple runs are uncomfortable because you and your body are learning a new thing. You have to slow way down, maybe take walk breaks to reset your heart rate. I had to rein in my stride and focus on my form. And at first, it was this mincing stride that felt awful and foreign to me, and it was very slow. And I felt guilty or bad to be running so slowly like I was doing something wrong. And when I began to heart rate train, I had to change my headset. I ended up removing pace entirely from my watch display, so it wouldn't bother me. I had to disentangle the relationship I had built in my head between pace and self-worth, essentially. As you get through those first uncomfortably slow runs and keep at it, you start to feel more confidence. You learn the effort level to run at a zone two heart rate. And as you practice, you learn the form and the cadence for that effort level. And after a few weeks of this, something strange and wonderful happens. You notice that you are running at your old pace with a new form at a lower heart rate. And you can now run at that pace much longer and with more comfort because you have reset your aerobic capacity. You reconfigure your body's response to running at a basic level. But to get there, to get there, you had to change your mind first. You had to change the way you mentally approach the workouts. You had to adopt the mind of a student and forget what you already knew. That's an example of how practice and adopting the mind of a student can help you break through a barrier. And when we look at endurance sports, we need to consider that concept of mastery. Not ability, not competence, but mastery. You're born with a certain amount of ability. Chances are you knew how to run before you became a runner. You probably knew how to ride a bike before you became a cyclist or a triathlete. And you might have even known how to swim, how to paddle around the pond a bit before you became that triathlete. So there's a baseline of ability that we all bring into our pursuits. And this may be zero or it may be mediocrity border, bordering incompetence, but it's not mastery. At some point, you want to improve, and you go looking for the how-to-do-it information. And in a learning process, people use a four-stage model. Maybe you've heard of it. Whether you realize it or not, you're using this model. And the first stage is unconscious incompetence. And this means you're unable to do something but don't know or care how it's supposed to be done. And the next stage is conscious incompetence. And that's where we understand that there is a right way to do it, and we don't know how. And this is the stage where you recognize that you need to figure something out. You need to learn something. And the third stage is conscious competence, where you are actively focused on practicing the thing to get it right. And you develop skills, and you know what you are doing, or at least trying to do. And the final stage is unconscious competence, where you are so well-trained in your skill that you can do it without thinking about it. And this is possible because you have practiced so much that it's burned in. And this is where you start to approach mastery. But there's a big gap between conscious competence and mastery. Mastery is, in reality, never fully attained. And this is what I wanted to bring to you today. Mastery is not a destination. Mastery is a practice. And there's always room to learn. There's always room to understand more. There's always room to grow. 
And even if your physical limits have been met, that is only part of the practice. And I say this because many of you, maybe maybe like me as well, are in a position of conscious competence. You have learned the body of knowledge around your sport, you have practiced your training, and you have achieved your goals. And now you may be feeling a bit of pointlessness, lack of direction, or the French would say, ennoi. And I'm here to tell you that the vine is not empty. There is always more to learn. Mastery is the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, I taught myself how to use speed work to qualify for the Boston Marathon in my 30s, when I could have just been another jogger in the neighborhood. And in that journey, I learned so much about myself that I kept going. And I learned how to mountain run and trail run and ultra run. And coach taught me how to heart rate train in my late 40s. And it opened up a whole new corner of the sport to explore and learn and master. And along the way, somewhere I learned how to mountain bike and how to swim. And I mastered none of these corners of endurance sport, but each approach with the mind of a child or a student brought tremendous bounty with it. Bounty in terms of achievement, learning, and new relationships and new experiences. Some took more focused practice than others, swimming in particular. It wasn't until I was able to get a good wetsuit and some video coaching that I was able to crack the swim code. And then it became such a wonderful form of moving meditation. It became wonderful. And so, my friends, my point here, don't get stuck in the doldrums of conscious competence. Early on, you'll make large gains. You will learn and improve exponentially. Then you may find a mentor or a coach and begin the process of mastery which involves practice, the fabled 10,000 hours of practice. Mastery is not the achievement of goals or a goal or even the achievement of competence. Mastery is the long tail of knowledge. Mastery is the attitude of a student. Mastery is the joy of the journey. Mastery is the calm and patient transfer or accumulation of knowledge. Approach your journey now as a student and see what else you can learn. And now for today's featured interview. Hello, Catherine, you back? Yes, I am. Hi, Chris. So why don't you give me the 200 words or less on who you are and and what you do and and what we're going to talk about. (laughs) Okay, I'm trying to uh, give you exactly 200 words. Yes, I'm Catherine or Kat from Atlanta, Georgia, 30 years old. I'm from Germany, like you might have noticed from my accent, but live here for the last four years now. And um, yeah, we're talking because I had a very traumatic um, experience during my second marathon, but came back for my third marathon only nine weeks later and qualified for Boston. And I had a so, great race. Yeah. You did have a great race. It's an interesting series of events in your life to go from the lowest sort of to the highest. What's your running background? Have you been a runner for a while? Yes, I always ran because my family, I have a family of runners and my parents always ran. So I grew up with it, but I've never been very competitive. Just I think I don't like the crowds. I don't like standing with everyone at the starting line and waiting for the start. It's something I don't like until today. 
So I was always running for myself, but one and a half years ago, I started running half marathon because a friend encouraged me to do this here in Atlanta, and I really enjoyed it, and I noticed that I'm running rather fast. So I kept it up, and I started running more, and one day I thought I could also try to run a marathon, and this is what I've done in March um, 2018 and for the first time here in Atlanta, and it was a great experience. I was running it so much faster than expected in three hours, 35, thanks to a great pace team, I have to say. Um, it was a hilly course, but it was a great experience. So much fun. And yeah, one week later, I decided to give it another try and signed up for the Marine Corps Marathon Lottery. So yeah, this is how it started. So I, th I think I've run that race Atlanta. It used to be the Atlanta Marathon, but it's something different now but it is it's a hilly it's, course oh yeah i mean atlanta is hilly there's no chance that you can run even a 5k here without having any hills involved it's a very rough course but i wasn't aware of it um, when i signed up i just like to run a race in atlanta so yeah. is that where you finished it with the 335 and said hey you know what i'm only a couple minutes away from a boston qualifier and i found you or met you or saw you giving your race report in that Boston Marathon training group, which has the most interesting stories in it. Um, so oh, yeah, that's yeah. how we got together. Was that Atlanta Marathon where you said, hey, I'm going to go and qualify for Boston? Not exactly. I never had Boston on my list because I was never a marathoner before. So I never thought that I would be able to run Boston uh, or to qualify for it. But a friend talked me into it, and this is how I got the idea to run another race. Because for Boston, you have to submit a time until the mid of September. So right. the Marine Marathon would have been too late. And this is how I got the idea to run a ma another marathon before to qualify for Boston. So, yeah. And which one was that, Catherine? It was a New England Green River marathon. It's from Massachusetts to Vermont along the Green River. And it was the first time that they have done this marathon. But I was researching different races, especially the ones with flat courses, net downhill courses. And this one also, the pictures looked just beautiful because it was along the Green River, through the woods. And yeah, it seemed to be a great race. And it was until... But it didn't go quite to plan, did it? No, definitely not. I was really prepared. It started really good, but summer in New England was very hot. It was on August 26th, and I had a great race until mile 20, mile 22. And looking back, I think this was a moment where I experienced what people call hitting the wall. I started feeling really bad. I noticed that I got very thirsty, um, that I yeah, just don't feel good anymore. And at some point, I noticed that I couldn't even keep my body upright anymore. I was running like I would fall down uh, every second. But there was also a great thing that happened during this race. At probably around mile 24, there was a girl, Megan. I didn't know her at this time. And she, I must have looked so miserable. She came and started like carrying me and uh, supported me and tried to bring me to the finish line. This was, yeah, looking back, this was such an amazing moment and such a big thing that she has done for me. But right after mile 25, around three hours, 22, it was over and I passed out. You passed out while you were running at mile 25? 
Yes, right. I didn't stop. I told myself it's only one mile away, even less. Um, we already finished, we already crossed the mile 25 marker. But I don't remember much anymore. I just saw it from my garment, but I kept running. <laughs> there was still movement, but then I just passed out and it was over. The next thing I remember was that I woke up in an ambulance car. And this was super terrifying. I never was so afraid in my life because I didn't remember what happened. I didn't remember where I was. I just knew that I had a friend running with me and she was waiting at the finish line and I knew that she would be there and had no idea where I am. I was afraid of my family who's in Europe. And it's like there were three million thoughts going through my head and it was like a really, really scary moment. So what ended up happening when you got to the hospital? What did they say? Yeah, well, this was very interesting and shocking. They first told me that my kidneys collapsed um, from dehydration, but also that it looked like I could have uh, had a heart attack, which they never have seen before from people in such a young age. So this was very shocking. I think I really got a heart attack when I heard it. So that's why they brought me to another hospital and they made all these checks for the next three days to make sure that my heart is really okay. And yeah, at this moment, I was so scared that I told myself that I would never, never run again. So yeah, it wasn't the best moment. So what ended up at the end of the day, what ended up being the prognosis for, for what, what happened to you? It was just severe dehydration. Yes, it was. I mean, the last five miles were on the streets. They were not in the woods anymore. And there was, it was super hot. It was hotter than I expected. And yeah, it was pure dehydration. So when you were running, what were sort of the symptoms? How did the symptoms progress while you were running? Did you feel like your hands going numb or... I mean, you, obviously you had some dizziness and some fatigue mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, but what was sort of the progression? So if we have some new marathoners out there, they know what to look for. I think it's just if you start feeling bad, stop. <laughs> I didn't notice any symptoms. I mean, I felt bad and I felt thirsty. I felt really, really thirsty. And I think the mistake I did at this point was taking more salt pills because I thought this would help. But it obviously did not help. And I kept running. I kept pushing. I just slowed down a bit, but I did not want to stop. And I think this was a mistake. And latest at the point where I couldn't keep my body upright anymore, I should have stopped. Yeah, this was obviously a sign that something was wrong. Sure. Like we talked about before, I've never gotten to that point because I stop long before I get to that point. There's nothing in my psychology that makes me want to keep running when my body's collapsing. So mm -hmm. it's interesting that you were able to override those signals from your body. Do you think it was just because you didn't know what was going on? Or do you think it was because you're a serious runner and you just sort of pushed your mind aside to run through it? I think it was, yeah, because I had a goal. And also, I never had this before. I never struggled before while I was running. So I was running in the heat here in Atlanta, and it really gets hot. I was running on hills, and I always thought this would be much harder than what I experienced there. So I couldn't believe that this is happening. And at one point, I don't remember many things after probably mile 23 anymore. I don't know why I didn't stop when I felt so bad. I just know that I didn't. And I think when the other runners came to help me, 
it was even more encouraging to continue. So yeah, I could run, I could still run, I could still move. So I think this was what stopped me from stopping. <laughs> so now you know. But yeah. like all good stories, right? We have an adventure, we have a challenge, but then you were able to come back from that challenge and find success at the Marine Corps Marathon of all places. And it was a bit of a storybook dream comeback for you only nine weeks later after spending three days in the hospital. Yeah. So how did you convince yourself that it was okay to run another marathon <laughs> after having just come out of the hospital? Like, who would you talk to that told you that was a good idea? Well, actually, I was waiting for the moment that people told me that it wasn't a good idea. I was so convinced at the beginning that I would never run again. Then I started running again, and still people did not say anything. I started running races again, like 10Ks, and no one said anything. I took things more easy and got more, yeah, I was more, how do you say, I, I started really looking into my hydration and that I have enough water with me, electrolytes and things like that, because I did not want to scare my family or my friends again. And I was waiting for the moment that they tell me that I should not do this. And if anyone had told me not to run the marathon, I would probably not have done this. At the beginning, I was convinced myself that it's not a good idea to run another marathon. But then I noticed that I feel better again. I heard from the doctors that there's nothing wrong with my body, that I'm completely healthy. So this was a point where I started thinking about the marathon again. And yeah, at the end, I decided I would not try to get an Austin qualification time. I just try to finish the race and have a good time. So yeah. So Marine Corps is not an easy race to qualify at. And I would, I typically recommend to people not to try to run Marine Corps for a time, unless you're an elite, because there's just so many people there. And most of them are sort of amateurs there to have fun, not to race. So it's very difficult to get out of the, the crowd. And it's very tight. There's a, just mm -hmm. navigating the course is hard there. So how did you manage to, it probably helped, right? in that you were worried it kept you slow in the beginning and then you could speed up at the end. So how did that Actually, play out that you were able to pull off your qualifier there? Actually, my problem is that I always have a rocket start because I don't like the crowd. Right. Always try to get out of the crowd as soon as possible and I always start too fast. And I was afraid that this would really be a disadvantage at the, the Marine Corps Marathon because it starts with a hill. But... Thanks to Atlanta, I was used to hills, and the hill wasn't so bad. And I wasn't running with the huge crowd, with a large crowd, for such a long time. At miles 7 to 9, I saw people who were running with the 4.30 paces, and there were so many people, I could not have run with them. So I was really happy that I was in with the 3.30 pace group. There were not so many people on the course, and yeah... There was not too much space, but it was not too crowded in the group I was running with. So I think this was an advantage. And also the atmosphere at the race is just awesome. The spectators are, they're so great. There's so many of them and they all have signs. They're cheering you on. The runners on the course are great. I was talking to different people during the race. I picked different people up who started to walk and who were talking and I just try to have a great time and distract my mind from what I'm doing. 
because this is usually what makes it harder. And uh, I was afraid that I could be scared of the distance when I think about it. But yeah, I just tried to have a good time and it actually worked out pretty well. At my 24, I started struggling a bit because I had cramps in my leg, but I was prepared this time. I had more energy gels with me and I got it under control right until yeah, right until the finish line. So it was a really great experience for me. So did you run with the 330 pace group the whole time, the whole race? No, I started with them, but then I um, I was in front of them. But I there were different people on the course I was constantly running with. They were pacing me, I was pacing them. So this was very helpful. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, what kind of weather did you get? Was it a good day for racing? Oh, it was a perfect racing weather. It was uh, in the low 50s, a bit overcast, a bit sunshine. It was a perfect mix. Yeah, perfect racing weather, definitely. When you were out there, did you ever think about your previous race and the problems you had? Did it ever come up in your mind? Yeah, uh, yeah a lot of times. I knew that a lot of my friends would track this race and would follow my journey because they were so afraid last time. And also, I had some friends on the course who wanted to um, yeah, make sure that I'm okay. My parents in Europe, they were tracking me, and all the time I was running over a time mat. I had tears in my eyes because I knew that there were so many people supporting me, even if they are not there. And it was a great feeling. It was very emotional. I was thinking back a lot about the race, but more with... I want to get my redemption. So when you crossed that finish line, and did you know what your time was when you crossed the finish yeah, line? I, yes, um, I, I've seen it because I only started 30 seconds after the, the official start. So when I saw the time, I knew that I qualified. But I was just more relieved that I finished this time. I was starting crying so bad. <laughs> and it was such a great feeling. People asked me if I'm okay because I just couldn't hold it anymore. I was so happy at this moment. Um, yeah. At the Marine Corps, you have that last long stretch where the start is, the start and the finish are in the same place. And you know yes. you have less than a mile to go and it's a straight yes. shot. And then you finish up that little hill into the monument with the Marines. It's really amazing. So if you're already emotional, that finish will make you even more emotional, right? I mean, that was a moment when I started cramping again, and it was just, oh, my God, I'm right before the finish line, and it starts happening again. It was like I just got my shit together and finished on this cramping leg, and, yeah, all these people there, it was so emotional. It was really great. The atmosphere, especially at the finish line, was awesome. But also after the finish line, on the way to the medals, you have all the Marines lined up and it was so great. I high-fived them all. <laughs> I was so happy um, and they had no chance to <laughs> to get around it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a great finish, definitely. So that's great. It sounds like you got quite an education in marathoning this summer. Definitely, definitely. But I have to tell you one more thing that happened after the finish line. I told you about the girl I met during the second marathon. 
um, who helped me and I found out after the marathon who she is and I heard that she would also run the race, uh, the Marine Corps Marathon. So after the race, I texted her and I just wanted to say thank you. And she also had finished right after me. And the moment when I asked her where she is, I saw her <laughs> and she saw me and we both we just wanted to give each other a hug and that's it and but we both started crying so bad and it was like it was a very emotional moment to see this person who just helped me without thinking about her own time yeah this was a great moment it was even better than finishing to have the opportunity to thank her um, for what she did that's great yeah that's awesome so it always amazes me how marathoning and endurance sports in general has this ability to create these life moments that you'll never forget, right? That you could get no other way. And I think this is a great example of your story is, is truly a story, right? Like something you read in a book or see in a movie, right? I've never seen it this way, but yeah, it's definitely a great memory and something I will always remember because it's just, I think it makes me a better runner. Yeah. Yep. So what are your plans now? Yeah, definitely uh, a few more races. I've already, I'm already signed up for Atlanta again and for Chicago next year. So my long-term goals are that I'm running all the major marathons. Yeah. Good. That's Good for you. The- right. As we move ourselves towards the exit here, what would you tell people who are listening? You know, what kind of advice or thoughts would you have for people who are listening? I think two things. First, listen to your body and don't do stupid things during races. That's important. But also, if something happens and you're struggling, I think it's important to go back on the horse very soon because otherwise you will always be afraid of it. And yeah, it will always be the elephant in the room. So it's important to go out again and just try it again, no matter how scary it was. Great. That's great advice. Well, thank you very much for your time tonight. I appreciate you talking to me. I love the story. I wish you good luck with your running career. I'm sure you have uh, many hundreds of marathons in front of you. (laughs) Thank you. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, but uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you. Okay, great. We'll talk to you later. Yes, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The Pursuit of Happiness and the Relationship to Purpose If you believe statistics, most people aren't happy. (laughs) If you just listen to the world around you, and it seems most people are unhappy with something. They're unhappy with their lives, their jobs, their relationships. In fact, I would hazard to guess that this unsettled unhappiness with everything not only drives much of the social conflict around us, but ironically drives a large part of our economy as well. (laughs) Happiness is different than pleasure. Pleasure you can find or you can buy. Pleasure will give you that quick, addicting dopamine hit. That makes you crave more pleasure. Pleasure is short-term, and it's unsustainable. Happiness is a state where you know you are in the right place, doing the right thing with the right people. Happiness is not bliss or peace. You can be happy in a stressful and challenging situation. You can be happy in a peaceful situation. You can be at peace in a challenging situation. 
you will find people who are happy in careers or jobs that we might find awful, (laughs) that we might find tedious. Happiness is a personal thing, and in some ways a personal choice. Happiness comes from inside. It's a state you can be in, and to some extent you can put yourself in. Happiness is not external. Happiness is internal. And happiness is not a destination. Happiness is a state that you cultivate along the way to your destination. In fact, any destination you think you have in your life is probably a mirage. Destinations are only waypoints in the journey. Happiness happens along the way. So you have to ask yourself, when are you happy? And it's when you know you're in the right place. You know it in your heart and your soul that this is where you're supposed to be. And this is what you're supposed to be doing. And these are the people you're supposed to be doing it with. Happiness comes when your life aligns with your purpose. This is when you're fulfilled. Happiness is living your purpose. It is when it is when what you do adds to what gives you joy. The luckiest people in the world have a clear, defined purpose. They have a compass in their lives. And when your life is in line with that compass, your weather vane points to happiness. Now, purpose is a hard thing. If you don't have it, you're rudderless, yet you may not know what your purpose is. So how do you find that? And that's a whole book or several books, volumes of books in itself. But briefly, we're no coward. Let's take a shot at purpose. You can choose how much you want to entangle your happiness with your purpose So the typical purpose-finding exercises have to do with thinking about the things you do that give you the most joy. You know, list out those situations where you feel the most fulfilled. Make a list of all the things you have done, experienced, and seen, people you've met that gave you that sense of inner joy where you knew it was just right. And that doesn't mean there were pleasure moments, although there could have been great pleasure hidden in them. They could be, and most likely were challenging moments, something you had to fight for or work for that felt perfect in its resolution. Think about about that and build that list. And that list will have some breadcrumbs in there, some clues that may lead you to your purpose. And that purpose could be very specific, like helping these kids find their way or curing cancer Everyone has whatever it takes inside them, like an acorn, to find and live a purpose. That purpose can be more abstract and encompassing, like making the world a better place or enabling others to find their strength. And when you read that purpose back to yourself, whatever it is, you will, it will feel true and worthy and personal. And part of the challenge with purpose is that we are stuck in our current state and our current self, Whereas manifesting that purpose and the corresponding happiness requires a bigger picture vantage point. And one way to get out of your current perspective trap is to move your perspective into the future. If answering the question, so where do you want to be in 10 years, is unanswerable or terrifying to you, then you have a purpose gap. Think of those things that give you joy. Transport yourself into the future and answer the question, what would my life look like if I was living my purpose? 
And when you get a sense of those answers, then you visualize it. You paint it in a detailed picture. Where do you live? Who are you with? What happens when you get up in the morning and then throughout the day? Another perspective-changing exercise is the Marley or the rocking chair test. And you imagine yourself at the end of your life looking backwards and answer the question, what would that well-lived, purpose-driven life look like? And these changes in perspective can be jarring because they illuminate the gap or gaps between what you're doing now and what you will need to start doing to manifest that future reality. And this all sounds easy, but it isn't. Personally, I think we put too much weight into finding a true purpose or a true calling. The unsaid conclusion being that if you don't have an enrapturing vision of your purpose, then you're somehow lacking or broken. If you can't find purpose right now, that shouldn't stop you from trying some potential purposes on for size. Take a guess. Pick a direction. Pursue it. And collect clues along the way. In purpose, like most things, action drives attainment or achievement. And one way to pick a direction or a purpose is to build a matrix of what you're good at and what you enjoy. We already had this list of things that we enjoy or things that bring us us joy. So, again, in this case, enjoy means not pleasure, but true fulfilling joy and per personal happiness. So if you get a piece of paper and draw two Cartesian lines or arrows, you know, like any line graph you've ever seen, one arrow points up, one points to the right, and one dimension is things I'm good at, and the other is things I enjoy, and see what experience and roles cluster where. And that will at least give you a sense of where you will be happy or can potentially be happy or can potentially have an impact. And you can start in that direction and see what happens. Purpose truly will eventually end up as a situation where you feel like you are being your best self and in some way giving back or helping others and the world. And that purpose or even the mirage of purpose will bring you that sense of happiness. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Thank you, my friends, for joining me for episode 4-398 of the Run, Run, Live podcast. Were you able to uh, collapse halfway through and then recover and finish strong, keep on going? Well, I am still taking it relatively easy now. I got a couple races. Like I said, I got my Thanksgiving race coming up. Uh, that's next. And I run that every year with my younger daughter. And I'm not expecting much, but I'll go give it a whirl, see my friends, have some fun. Think about 5Ks for me is it's just a lot of pain for very little result. <laughs> my, my 5K PRs are well behind me. So I sort of, um, I sort of fear these 5Ks because, because I'm going to go all out and suffer a lot. And, uh, with, you know, a time that is probably two or three minutes slower than what I could have done. 10 years ago. So it's uh, it's kind of a lose-lose for me, but I'll go see my friends and have some fun. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm taking it pretty easy right now, and I'm working with Rachel, my nutrition coach, to get healthy over the next few months, and of course, lighter, so I can put in a good training cycle for the spring. And we just got uh, came home to eight inches of snow here, which was interesting. I got to go move that. That'll be a good exercise, because it's too heavy for the snowblower, I think. I'll have to go uh, move it with a shovel. I go through cycles of good nutrition, and those typically 
last with some point adjustments for a couple of years, and then I need to get help again for a few months. I'm definitely in the conscious competence phase where I know what I'm supposed to do, but I have trouble executing it. If anyone else wants to uh, work with Rachel, I'll put her links in the show notes. Uh, I've interviewed her before. You can go look at that. Or you can shoot me an email at cyktrussell at gmail.com. That's cyktrussell, Chris Yellow, King, Tom, Russell with two S's and two L's. So I'm also a big consumer of podcasts, and partly it's my personality type where I just hate to waste time. So if I'm in my car or on the run, I like to listen to podcasts. I like to learn stuff, and I have a smattering of business and pleasure and other topics that I go through, and I've gotten good at cycling on to new ones when I feel like, you know, like it's time for something new and ignoring the old ones, because otherwise you're list of unlistened to podcasts will pile up and make you feel guilty. Pile up in a corner. It's okay. It's okay. Listen to what you like. Dump what you don't. You're under no obligation. I don't listen to a lot of running podcasts anymore, where, especially the ones where people just turn on the microphone and talk while they run. It's just not that interesting to me. And just, I'm sorry, that just isn't. And I don't feel like I get a lot out of the how-to running podcasts either, so I don't actually listen to a lot of running podcasts. But here are a few episodes or podcasts that have stood out in the last few weeks, and I'll try to put links to them in the show notes. First is a new podcast called Ultra Running History by Davy Crockett. And Davy does a great job of producing the show it's uh, well-recorded, good audio, lots of sound effects and transitions and sound bites. He has a lot of fun with it. And the historical ultra events, you know, like the cross-country walkathons and all this stuff, it's super interesting. Another show I have on my feed, like millions of other people, is Tim Ferriss. And I would never say that a person as successful as Tim impresses me as a narcissistic ass most of the time. I would never say that. And I dislike this self-indulgent, super long format that he uses where it's a two and a half hour long podcast. So I pick and choose based on the guest. And a recent episode, episode 343, featured Seth Godin. And Seth is just wonderful. He's a wonderfully centered and mindful person. And that's a great list, and I would recommend that one. And since I'm a New England boy, I have been listening to Gladiator by the Boston Globe, which is a six-part series on the rise and fall of Aaron Hernandez. It's super dark, but if you remember the murder trial and the suicide of Hernandez, uh, it's a pro football thing, but you'll be fascinated. I am. And our friend, the Zen Runner, is back. He's doing a new project called Zen to Zion, Road to Ultra, where he is training to run an ultramarathon with his daughter. And it's charming, and Adam has always been a good podcaster. And he's also spinning up his Burning 20 podcast, uh, where he's going to use some coaching to lose 20 pounds. That's always been popular. A good short listen that I've discovered is The Way I Heard It by Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs fame. 
he's a my daughter Teresa actually turned me on to this. He's a great storyteller, and these are good little bits of joyful storytelling. And by the way, if you never here's another Tim Ferriss interview that you want to go listen to, Mike Rowe. It was a really good interview. So lastly, before I move you to the exit, one of the shows I have on my feed, another one of them, is On Being by Krista Tippett. And I believe this is a public radio show as well. And she talks to authors and poets and philosophers and all these weird outlier types about super deep woo-woo stuff. And I don't listen to all of them. I just look at what they are and I choose a couple here and there that might interest me or when I have extra room in my schedule. And she recently did a show with Sally Cohn and Eric Erickson called Relationship Across Rupture, which was really good. And I would recommend you go listen to this. I try to avoid politics, especially in the current political climate. I find it a waste of energy, but I found this this podcast was almost an antidote for our current political tensions and emotions uh, universally. So she holds, in this podcast, she holds a forum with Sally Cohn, who was the lesbian liberal foil on Fox News for a while, for many years, and Eric Erickson, who's a conservative pundit and radio personality from Georgia. So two sides of the spectrum. And instead of setting it up as your typical cable news cage match, they instead they explore all the things that they have in common. And at the end of the day, you realize that everyone has, you know, 85, 95% in common and only a few of these things that are, you know, that separate people. And it's a great realization, no matter who you are, when you look across the way at your supposed adversaries, they're not bad people. They want what's best for their family, for their country just like you do. And if you had dinner with them, you too would like each other as people, not positions. And the things that separate are small. They're small things that have been whipped into big things by people with agendas. And and we're better than that. So I found that like a giant relief, almost life-affirming. So, so master a bit of listening, and uh, I'll see you out there. And then he thought... That he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry In this example, it is, oof, in this example, what we are really saying when we push back against having to run an uncomfortably slow pace when we begin heart rate training, wow, that sentence is just awful.